The colonel was an arresting figure, in plain, neat civilian dress. He was fifty-four years old, but his five feet eleven inches were held erect. Though he had a deceptively larger look, he weighed not quite one hundred seventy pounds. There was a subtle distortion of his physique which escaped all but the sharpest eyes. The upper body was enormous, on a scale to dwarf the narrow hips, slight legs, and tiny feet. Chest and shoulders were massive, and his huge head rose from a short, thick neck. He wore a brush of black mustache with no beard. There were streaks of gray in his brown hair, but these were scarcely noticeable, despite his protest of thirteen years before, when he had come home from the Mexican War, that his family had stared at the furrows in his face and the white hairs in his head. His complexion was highly colored. There was a quiet animation in his dark brown eyes. Despite its rather heroic features, a large Roman nose, broad forehead, and deep temples, the face was dominated by its expression of calm self-assurance. It was this, perhaps, which had so often inspired confidence in women, children, soldiers, secretaries of war, and the commanding general of the United States Army. On this spring day, only a vague sadness of face gave Lee's visitor a hint of his personal struggle through the weeks when the troubles of the country had been mounting, and the Union seemed to be dissolving. The colonel gave no impression of wealth or expensive taste, either in his clothing or in the appearance of the manor house. This was accurate enough, for only lately he had so despaired of his low income as to give up the proper landscaping of his wife's home, and was forced to tend only small clearings about the house. It had not been long since he had confessed to his son Custis, The necessity I daily have for money has, I fear, made me parsimonious. Lately, too, he had revealed to a cousin a wry feeling of failure in life, of the small progress I have made on my professional and civil career. Until now, the fact was, his twenty-three years in the Army had brought him no higher than the salary of one thousand twenty-five dollars a year. Lee and Brian were not long on the hillside studying the sights, but there was a brief moment so striking to the visitor that it later seemed prophetic, and he could not forget it. Lee's voice dropped its tone of almost jovial cheerfulness to a deep gravity. The colonel raised one of his big hands, pointing over the water to the capital. That beautiful feature of our landscape, he said, has ceased to charm me as it once did. I fear the mischief that is brewing there. If there was a proprietary air about his words, it was not strange. Robert Edward Lee and the city, and the huge house, too, were much of an age. A more imaginative or self-centered man might have been aware of the kinship, whose bonds were much like those of the early history of the country itself. He was the son of Light Horse Harry Lee, great cavalryman of the Revolution, also Washington's intimate, and his funeral orator, whose rhetoric seemed likely to endure. First in war, first in peace. Robert Lee was born in the mansion Stratford Hall, not far away, in a room where, by family tradition, two signers of the Declaration of Independence had been born before him. His mother was Anne Hill Carter, of the line of Old King Carter, one of the wealthiest of Virginia families. His boyhood began with his father's bankruptcy and imprisonment for debt, and it ended with his nursing his invalid mother in her fallen estate at an unpretentious house in Alexandria. He was an honor cadet at West Point, and had gone to the war with Mexico at the elbow of General Winfield Scott, old fuss and feathers, whose admiration for Lee amounted almost to awe. Robert emerged from the Mexican War with a reputation as the Army's most talented young officer. 
He had since filled every choice post to which influence and merit could guide him. He had headed the pet projects of the Engineer Corps in New York Harbor, Florida, Baltimore Harbor, the Savannah Waterfront, and had battled the Mississippi at St. Louis. He had been West Point superintendent, had fought Indians on the border, had put down the John Brown raid with the capture of the Kansas fanatic. Until lately, he had been second in command in Frontier, Texas. Men even now spoke of Scott's admiration for Lee, quoting the aging warrior, If war comes, it would be cheap for our country to ensure Lee's life for five million dollars a year. Veteran officers remembered the days in Mexico, and some said that Lee's genius for handling troops had enabled Scott to win fame and his war without coming.